Hi, my name is John Kim. I'm a therapist who went through his own rebirth many years ago, and I've been documenting my journey ever since, sharing my life lessons and revelations. I believe in casual over clinical, with you instead of at you. I come unrehearsed on purpose because self-help doesn't have to be so complicated. So as you know, my podcast is mostly short form. I bring things to street level, half documentation, and by documentation, me sitting on a toilet talking into my phone. And then the other half, uh, some science, some psychobabble, things I learned in therapy school, tips, tools, mindset, etc. But now I'm introducing what I call the Angry Therapist Presents series. And these series are uh, from other experts, people that I admire and learn have learned from, um, doing what they do best, which is going to be more long form. So if I'm in a shark glass, series is in a wine glass. And today, I want to present to you friend and trauma expert, Dr. MC McDonald. She's dedicated her life to trauma. And she has a new book called Unbroken. You should go pick it up. This is the trauma tapes. And these are real stories as she dissects the trauma through her lens She's a university teacher, she's a coach, she's an author, she's got so much to offer. You're going to get so much out of the next eight episodes, and we're going to release these once a week. Enjoy the trauma tapes. Okay, so really quickly before we start, we have a rewind, which is what we're calling our corrections area. Uh, This is just something that we wanted to go back to from last week that I felt like I didn't explain well enough. Um, So... Okay, we were talking about the fight, flight, freeze system in the brain, and we were using the example of when the fire alarm goes off. (laughs) And Lisa was talking about when her roommate would get up and kind of stand there and scream, and she would get up and do all the things. And I said something like, because you asked, like, what, why was I able to, like, function? And she was not you know, I was still in executive function. And I was like, no, you weren't in executive function. Probably you were in fight. It's just that fight was working for you. So, and that I felt like was confusing because it's like, wait a second, is fight, 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 flight, and freeze something that like helps us or something that kind of takes us out of the game and makes us dysfunctional? And the answer is essentially both. So the, the fight, flight, freeze response is, is the beginning of the trauma response. And it is supposed to get us out of danger. That's what it is evolutionarily designed for. So when you're walking and you see a lizard and you make a noise and the lizard goes and flings itself away (laughs) really quickly, um, that's the same response that we have in our brain. And the lizard isn't feeling any like trauma. It's not dysfunctional. It's not collapsing, right? It's doing what it's supposed to do on a biological level to get out of danger. And so you can function really well, like I'm putting that in quotes, like in fight, flight, or freeze, because if we're looking at functioning well, we're looking at getting out of the situation. So you were able to like get up and you're all activated and you have that like, let's go, right? And you're putting on clothes and running out and your roommate's standing there like screaming, (laughs) but (laughs) watching you and mirroring you and being like, okay, I have to do this and this and this. Um, You're not, you're still not connecting to what we call probably, right? We didn't do like a brain scan of you. So we'd have to test, but you're probably not connecting with executive function in the brain. That's the part of your brain that's responsible for like rational decision discernment. Like, so if you're standing there trying to decide which pants to put on or which clothes would be the best things, then you're in kind of that executive function. If you're just doing it without thinking, 
then you're, you're in fight. It's just that fight is working for you. Okay. And the reason we need to like, understand that is that we think about these coping mechanisms in a totally negative light and they are not negative. And a lot of the time when they work and we don't notice them, they're just working well, you know? Yeah. So we had, I had a funny thing happen. I remember telling you this a couple of weeks ago, I had this like little desk in and it was like kind of fried and falling apart and it was held together by these like ribbons essentially, which is not a good way to build a piece of furniture. But anyway, um, in straight up in the middle of the night, the thing came crashing down and in my head and I was sleeping. So I like woke up in the middle of the night and in my head, I was like, there is an animal that has just crashed through the window, which does not make sense. But like, this is my, like, this is what I'm thinking. And here's what I have to do. <laughs> and I like jumped up, had the flashlight and was like in the corner, ready to like fight an animal. <laughs> sorry. That had to be terrifying. I'm sorry. It was, it's super funny. Cause it was just like, of course it's not like, why did of all the hours of the day, why did it have to happen at three in the morning? Whatever. <laughs> right. But that wasn't, there was no discernment happening. I wasn't like functioning in a way that I would normally when I'm going about the course of my day and I have full access to all of my brain, right? <laughs> like I wasn't making decisions. I was moving. Right. So I think in our, in our thing last week, I called that go, which like, if you go Google that, that's not a thing. People don't call it that, but which is why I wanted to clarify, but that's what's happening. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's not a negative. Right. The, the fight or flight response or freeze response is not a negative and it can be very productive mm -hmm. in the moment. Yep. It's protective and adaptive and it helps us survive. And sometimes it also gets in the way. So it, could you say it's like the physical like uh, response to what's happening? Yeah, totally. It's a okay. it's out of your hands. It's a biological, it's a neurobiological and biological event. Okay. So it's like you know, and if you've had that experience, like in the middle of the night, you know, that like, you don't do any thinking, you just go. Right. And, and the same thing is to be said of like, the stuff is complicated. The same thing is true of freeze. Right. You don't decide to freeze. Your body's just like, we're, we're out of here. Like, right. We're not, we're not going to do this. Right. Um, which you hear of that a lot, you know, especially mm -hmm. in, in horrible situations and people detach. Totally. Yep. Bessel van der Kolk actually describes, um, and this is kind of such a funny, like only a researcher would say this, but he got mugged when he was early in his career and he was working with uh, clients who were dealing with the dissociative response, which is what that is. And he got mugged and he had the experience while he was being kind of like beaten up by these muggers of like leaving his body. And yeah. he talks about being grateful for having the experience because now he knows what that actually feels like. You literally like leave your body and you can do that on it's a, all of these symptoms that we ever talk about are always on a spectrum. So it could be really, really minor to extremely like extreme. Mm -hmm. The movie precious, which if you haven't watched it is devastating, but really good, does a really good job of showing that she dissociates when she's being sexually assaulted and, and you see that and it's done in the movie in a way that's extreme kind of on purpose, but that is something that like actually happens. People do that. Yeah. And it saves you. You don't then remember a lot of the physical uh, trauma, which is a mercy, you know? Right. Right. Something to be grateful for. Yeah. 
it's a good, it's yeah. a good thing. It's not a, and then like the thing that we always talk about is that the, you know, there's that dissociative response can like follow you through your life. And then that can become something that causes distress, but you can then work with that, you know? Right. To try to get your alarm system working only when there's actually a fire. Okay. Thank you for explaining that. Yes. So that's our rewind. So if we ever talk about something on the show that you guys have questions about, or you feel like we got wrong, email us, comment on Instagram, whatever, because we will go back and either correct ourselves or make it more clear or whatever. So, yeah. Okay. So um, we have a letter this week. Do you want to just jump in? Sure. This letter is from what now? And what now starts and says, my story is a bit long and complicated, but the long and short of it is this. I had a long and devastating divorce after being married for 13 years and then reconnected with a woman I dated a long time ago. That recently I did, and I just can't seem to get over it. Here's the longer version. My ex-wife and I both worked really hard and we had three boys. Our lives were frantic, but I thought we were doing a good job of splitting up tasks. When I had to work long hours, I made sure to come home as soon as possible and take over for dinner and bedtime stories so she could do her work. In 2017, I had a major issue with work. Some financial mistakes were made and we ended up in a pretty dangerous situation. It was one of those things where you might show up at work one day and find the doors locked and all of our work and tools seized. To make things worse, we couldn't talk about it to our clients or to the crew. We needed to keep working to stay afloat. I felt like a sitting duck and I had to lie all the time, which I hated. My wife couldn't understand why it was so stressful for me. As I became more and more stressed, she became more distant and focused on her work and I felt really alone. Finally, I accepted another job undercutting my salary to make sure I got in. I told my wife that now all of the stress was leaving our lives and we could concentrate on each other again. She told me she was moving out for three to six months. She said she would come back, that she wasn't interested in seeing anyone else. She wanted it to work. I was a good man and that she was taking the kids. I was so, so shocked. I started Googling me methods for suicide and ended up at the hospital for four nights. When I got home, all of my wife's things were gone and her key was on the kitchen table. I spent my life doing everything she wanted, working on her projects, watching the kids while she developed her business. Why can't she see her footprints on my shoulders? I started my new job. The manager was a demon and we clashed. I lost my nerve to stand up to him. I found my wife's Tinder profile and I drank whiskey. I sent her messages that I was going to commit suicide. We had been together for 13 years. In the morning, I got an aggressive email from a lawyer about the messages I'd sent. I went to see a lawyer. A few months into 2018, I called up an old friend for her birthday. We had been a couple for around a year when we were 18 or 19, broke up and remained friends. My wife hated her, so the friendship had lapsed. We got drunk together. We talked all night and slept with each other. She has a boy who was 12 then with 100% custody. The father was a hopeless junkie who had terrorized and stalked her and had been in and out of jail ever since the boy was born. She was out of work with a chronic back injury. Our chemistry together was stronger than ever. We were both traumatized in similar ways. 
We spoke at length. We loved each other. My kids and her kids all got along. The dynamic was fluid and we were jigsaw puzzle pieces for each other. The only pity was that we had missed out on 20 years of each other. We were ready to take on a marathon together, bind our lives together slowly and steadily, sustainably. The divorce details were prolonged and brutal, so I continued life under stress. Working long hours, undercut at work, undermined and triggered by court cases, looking after my boys, going to night school. I saw my girlfriend when I could. I wanted to move to be nearer to her, to work, to whatever friends I had left. We found an amazing school for the eldest to start high school, and I rented a house in the zone for it and a great primary school for the other two boys. There were markets nearby, bike trails, old friends. I discussed it at length with my lawyer. It was the one thing I wanted. Surely we could compromise. The ex played hardball every time. She wanted them to go to school near their house in the next suburb, which was garbage. My ex-wife lawyer took pot shots at my soul. My ex-wife lied. I told the truth. The court concluded I only wanted to move to be closer to my girlfriend and not for the school or the community. I was forced to stay where I was. At the end of 2019, we finally settled on custody. And then 2020. Work dropped down to three days a week because of COVID. I finished night school to become a trainer, but couldn't start working because of quarantine. My girlfriend had to move out of her place and move back in with her parents. She flattened and flattened throughout the winter at her parents. I called her to talk and cheer her up, but it's hard to engage with a deflated balloon. After two and a half years of divorce proceedings, I was able to work on my house with my ex-wife's name off the title. I smashed a hole in the wall. I rebuilt the kitchen. I built bookshelves and pigeonholes for the boys' book bags and another to organize the toys. My girlfriend dumped me on the third anniversary that my wife left me. She said she was angry with me for coping so well during lockdown. She said we're so perfect together, but she's going with her gut. I collapsed into the sobbing wreck I had been three years earlier. I cried every day for three months. It had happened again. I went to the doctor and asked for antidepressants. I took two in two days and they nearly sent me mad. I drank instead. I wrote long letters I never sent. I gave her space. I missed her. I sobbed on the kitchen floor in my work pants while the kettle boiled. In December 2020, I applied for a job to teach furniture making in prison and got the job. I've left the corporate world and I love working in education. I can engage the guys and teach them useful skills. Everybody's keen to help and nobody gives a shit about my personal life, much less use it against me. I spent an afternoon teaching a prisoner how to calculate the area of a triangle. He told me he had had teachers try to tell him this stuff, but he never understood it until I explained it to him. The situation is complex. I think my ex-girlfriend projected her anger against her father and her stalker ex onto me, but there's nothing I can do about it. The psychiatrist diagnosed me with an adjustment disorder. I miss the woman I love, and some weeks I'm so lonely, all I can do is cry. Signed, what now? Mm. I can feel that question, like in my bones, you know, like what now? I know. My initial reaction, like the first thing that I, and that we've seen this with almost all of our letters and I see this with clients all the time is just like, God, the layering of things. Yeah. 
Like, it's like we, you know, sometimes we talk about 2020 as if it happened when we were all doing well and everything was fine. And then bam, 2020. And that is the case for some people, but a lot of people like were already struggling with a bunch of stuff. Right. And then 2020. Right. Or they were just getting on their feet and then 2020, you know, and it's like, right. The context of that. Yeah. It's like they you put the frying pan on the fire. Yeah. You know, yeah. When I first started writing about trauma, one of the things that I would talk about is that I think that like the central wound um, in some ways is that we lose our blueprint. You know, like you have this whole plan of how things are, well, like what the world looks like, what your role in it is and like all that kind of stuff. And yeah. Um, that's profoundly disorienting. It's like someone you're looking at this thing and you're planning all this stuff and then someone rips it away. And I think I thought of that because it sounds like this person is maybe like in building or constructing or that kind of work, you know? Um, I feel like that happens over and over and over again. Yeah, it does. You know, the first time it happens is the, is the shocking. Right. But then it, it just, I don't know. It continues to happen. Happening. Yeah. The rug gets pulled out from under you. Like whatever the language is that you're using to describe that you lose your blueprint. Right. Right. Um, I always think of, this is so silly, but I always think of the fraggles. Do you remember the fraggles? <laughs> I do. Yeah. And the little, there were, I think they were called doozers. These little green guys that would like their whole role in the show. First of all, they were so cute. They would build these like little structures that were really like in depth and then the fraggles would come by and eat them. <laughs> But the thing yeah. with the doozers is that they never like slowed down. They were just like, okay. And then they just kept building another thing, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. what weird little lesson was Jim Henson trying to teach us? Um, and I think like the thing about when you lose your blueprint is that like, it's so disorienting that we get tricked into thinking that the best way to like reorient ourselves is to stop and like figure out what happened. And we end up like, obviously there's a time and a place for that. And that's important to understand. But like, we sometimes get stuck here trying to sort out the past. Yeah. And you turn totally towards the past and you kind of forget completely that there's a future out there too, you know? Yeah. And I think when we get stuck like that, that's when we get exhausted and depressed. Yeah. I think it's also like, I don't know. I'm not sure how you feel about this, but when, when things maybe aren't going well and we have that, tendency to just do the right things or the things that we think are the right things. And you kind of put your head down. You know, we both know people like this, yeah. you know, or are like this, you know, in different situations, then you kind of shut down in a way. Yeah. And that you're just like, and your intentions are good. You're you're trying to do the right things. And it's so frustrating yeah. that after the string of right things that you're doing, that it doesn't turn out the way that you thought it would. Right. But I wonder what, with your head down, doing all the right things, if you're not seeing what's really right happening in front of you. Yeah. That's a really good point. You know, is that a reaction to mm-hmm. pain or right. confusion or, right. I don't know. And also what are you missing? Cause you're so frantically acting. Yeah not reflecting. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I was listening to this thing by Gabor Mate. Do you know him? No. 
this morning. He's a fascinating researcher. He works in, um, he was a, I think he was like a general physician for many, many years. And then he, um, he became a trauma researcher and works in addiction and trauma. Um, and his, one of his whole main things is that there is no, um, there is no addiction without trauma. Oh, wow. But anyway, he was, I was listening to this talk the other day and he was talking about, um, he's a very like charismatic, affable person. He's, he's just super like, he's like magnetic, you know, and mm -hmm. he starts this talk by reading obituaries and he's like, listen to these obituaries. These are fascinating. And he's reading the obituaries and they're all like, you know, so-and-so worked so hard until they just absolutely dropped dead at work. And so-and-so gave everything to this person. And so-and-so got this diagnosis of cancer. And then they, they built a nonprofit to help other people in the midst of dealing with chemotherapy and radiation and all this stuff. And he like stops and everyone's in, in the audience, I would imagine is feeling like, wow, like people are so impressive. And he's like, this is fucked up. Right. Like we need to take care of ourselves because what we're now paying attention to is the stress that putting your head down and blasting forward is doing to you. Exactly. It's like, it's not coincidental that these people died young. Right. All of the things that he's talking about. And he's not, he's like, it's not coincidental that these people are all helpers. Right. So I wonder if part of the thing that the letter writer is, is kind of dealing with is that he's put himself aside yep. too much. Yep to help others too often. And that's burning him out in lots of ways, you know? Right. Right. And that, you know, the, the situations that, you know, the end of a marriage is, is stressful and, and terrible. And, um, I, you know, personally being on the sidelines of a, of a high conflict divorce and custody situation with courts involved is unbelievably traumatic and stressful and um, horrible to go through. And then to try and have another relationship that kind of follows the same path and then to have the work stuff on top of it. I mean, you know, there, there's a lot, right. You've been through a lot in the past yeah. five years, five or six years. Right. And you're taking care of everybody else. Right. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's hard not to, to make that, I'm trying not to make that sound like a criticism. I think that's what we do. And that's what our society um, appreciates over function, taking care of others, being a caretaker, putting yourself aside, sacrifice, being a martyr, right? All these things are like highly valued. Right. Um, but I think that maybe some of the extreme reaction that you're having is, which is, I'm going to talk about adjustment disorder in a second. Um is because you, you don't have any self-care coping, right? right? You're not, you're not taking care of yourself. So when you hit a wall, you reach for alcohol and numbing and you get to the point where you're considering suicide because you're, you hit the wall, you know, mm -hmm. and that's a really real thing. Yeah. Um, Self-care is not, you know, it's such a, like words are so fascinating because they get so loaded and, and weird and self-care has become this like thing that you only do in LA if you're selfish and rich, <laughs> right? Like that's right. Like, if I, I would bet that if you did, if you put self-care in your search thing in Instagram, like I could, I could bet what kind of images come up. Right. But like self-care is like actually not optional it's and it doesn't have to be like frou-frou white yoga pants in Malibu you know 
Right. Um, it's, it can be like taking 15 minutes for yourself in the morning to like breathe and lie on the floor or journal or like, you know, take a walk and make sure you're drinking enough water and eating enough stuff. And if alcohol is a problem, not allowing yourself to have it in your house and like, you know, like these things. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Making a good meal for yourself. Like, yeah. Right. Yeah. It doesn't, you're right. It has a bad um, name right now. And, and you do have that vision of the yoga pants and, you know, (laughs) and like having to like, I think a lot of people are just like, well, I can't like, that it feels like a lifestyle change. It is a lifestyle change, but it doesn't have to be, you don't have to become someone else. Right. You know? Right. And it feels selfish. Right. But that's the thing really quickly. Wait, hold on. I'm going to pull this up. None of this is ever planned. So hold on. <laughs> hold please. Do we need hold music? <laughs> Could you sing a little jazz tune for us? Um, that I'm reading burnout right now, which I'm just going to talk about for the next like 12 weeks. Cause it's fascinating to me. And I'm, I'm going through it with a group and, um, we talked about, um, self-care as selfish. Like, why do we think of that? And she's, uh, so the, the authors, Emily and Amelia Nagoski reference a philosopher, Kate Mann, who wrote a book called down girl, the logic of misogyny. And in that book, Kate Mann talks about, she differentiates between the human giver and the human being. And if you're in this position of being a human giver, you're expected to give all of your time, attention, affection, and your body willingly to the other group of people, which are the human beings. So human beings get to just be, and human givers are subordinate. And human givers are taught to believe, and then they come to believe themselves, that self-care is selfish. Mm-hmm. So she, she writes, this is on page 17 of Burnout by Emily and Amelia Nagoski, human givers must at all times be happy, calm, generous, and attentive to the needs of others, which means they must never be ugly, angry, upset, ambitious, or attentive to their own needs. Givers are not supposed to need anything. If they dare to ask for, or God forbid, demand anything, that's a violation of their role as giver and it will be punished. If the giver doesn't obediently and sweetly hand over whatever the human being wants, for that too, the giver may be punished, shamed, or even destroyed. Yeah. So if you find yourself in that role of being a human giver, and this goes back to the thing that Gabor Mate was talking about, like you are kind of like, incorrectly um, given accolades for being someone who doesn't need anything. Right. And then when you do need something, you don't know how to give it to yourself. The idea of giving it to yourself feels selfish. And you certainly can't ask anybody else because you've put yourself in this role and society has put you in this role where you are the person who gives. Right. You know? Right. Wow. I know. That's so true. I know. And then when you find that you do need something or want, or want something, you, the level of frustration that you experience because you're not able to meet your own need or articulate what you need from someone else becomes, I don't know, bigger than anything else in the room. You know, it it becomes, yeah, I get that. I totally get that. Causes shutdown. Cause then you're just like, well, and then people will turn to you and be like, why didn't you just ask? And you're like, yeah, right. And you're like, fuck you. Like, I didn't know how to ask. <laughs> I didn't like, know how to need, I didn't let alone how to communicate it. Like that's not even on my horizon. What are you talking about? Why didn't I know? I know. 
I could have accessed that, maybe I would have, but that takes like 15 steps. You have to notice that it's there, figure out how to communicate it and be able to communicate it in a moment of overwhelm. That's a lot of skill. It is a lot of skill. And if you're not, if you're taught to do the complete opposite for your whole life, like right. that, that not only is hard, but it probably feels, I know that it feels threatening. Right. And then your body is on that stress response where you're, you're in the moment of threat and you're just trying to get out of danger, which means you're not functioning on all cylinders. And then, yeah, it's just, it's a spiral. Yeah. I I get the frustration. I really do. Totally. But I think like, this is also, there's a huge lesson here for the letter writer. And for anyone who's listening, who's like resonating with that, which is that one of the first steps is to kind of get into a better relationship with yourself. Right make a promise and a commitment to yourself that you will at least in a couple of moments of every day come first. And whatever that means for you can be, you know, specific to whatever your life looks like, but um, that can really radically change your orientation in the world and also your relationship with other people, including coworkers, you know? Yeah. Like we talk about relationships as if they're only romantic relationships and those are the only ones that matter, but this stuff comes out in everything, you know? Right. Right. Um, okay. So, so the reader mentioned adjustment disorder, which I just want to talk about really quickly, um, because this gets thrown around a lot. And I think a lot of people don't know what it means. Mm -hmm. A caveat about diagnostics, obviously this is a podcast. We're not diagnosing the letter writer who we don't know, right? Like we can't diagnose neither of us have degrees for which we would diagnose people in general. One of the things that I do in my research is look critically at the way that psychology, like as a field, defines and understands things like in general. So when I teach college classes, one of the things I'm teaching an abnormal psych class right now, and we talk about, we go through the DSM and we talk about these diagnostic criteria and we kind of pull them apart. So that's something I do in my own research. So I've looked at um, adjustment disorder, which is sometimes called stress response syndrome, sorry, stress response syndrome or situational depression. So any of those three things could be called the same thing. Um, And the main feature is that you have a really a great difficulty managing or adjusting to a particular stressor. Um, So sometimes they'll say like, if the reaction to the stressor seems way more extreme than the stressor itself, then that's a good indication that you're dealing with adjustment disorder. Um, And it's super important to understand that the main symptom of adjustment disorder is that it changes the way you feel and think about the world and your place within it, which is exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about losing the blueprint, right? Um, you, um, You kind of lose meaning, right? You lose your sense of like how the world makes sense and what your role in the world is. And that's super disorienting and causes this spiral of stress in your body, which then comes out in these symptoms of, you know, as he says, crying on the floor in your work clothes, trying to like keep going, but like you're, you're just dealing with these emotions over and over and over again. Um, It's, it's closely related to depression. It's closely related to PTSD, but it's different because it tends to last less long and I always push against the, the, the language of disorder, right? Because it sounds like you're doing something wrong. Like that's what that word means in our society. And it's not, it's a, this is just a thing that's happening in your brain and body. And it's a sign of distress certainly. And that's what brings you into 
to write to us and to go to a psychiatrist and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's obviously a thing. I'm not saying that because it's not a disorder, it's not real. It is real. It's just that it's a normal, right? Like, and it's also temporary. A lot of the time when we slap on a diagnostic to somebody, they, we don't then say you can be in remission from a psychological thing, just like you can be in remission from a physical thing. So if you break your leg, that's super inconvenient and a problem for lots of weeks, but then you heal. Right. And the same thing is true. I mean, adjustment disorder tends to last about six months. So it's not, um, I mean, and then it could become something else if it goes untreated and all that kind of stuff, obviously, but this is not a permanent condition. It doesn't mean you, I think a lot of people, the way that I see it is that people think it means I adjust badly. Like in right. general, you know what I mean? Right. Right. Well, the, I mean, the, you, the first words you use was it's the stress response. Yeah. Disorder, just stress Syndrome. response. Syndrome. Syndrome. Yeah. Right. And then it's situational depression. Mm-hmm. You know, I was diagnosed with situational depression after mom or dad died. I can't remember. Yeah, of course. No shit. Like right. <laughs> that was a situation <laughs> that made me depressed. Of course it did. It, it would be strange if I wasn't, you yeah. know, mm-hmm. uh, but I've heard the adjustment disorder thrown around a lot. So yeah. yep, yep, yep. It's, good to, it's good to clear that up. And part of the other thing with diagnostics is that it's important to understand that when, whenever you see a clinician, if you're billing your insurance, you exactly. have a diagnosis, which does not mean like typically what that means. And some clinicians will say this out loud and some of them don't because of ethical boundaries and stuff like that. They have to diagnose you with something. And so often they just pull something out and there are certain, like they call them sometimes like grab bag categories where like they will diagnose you with generalized anxiety disorder because it's really easy to meet those criteria. And an insurance company is not going to uh, ask for further clarification, right? Like, um, and major depressive disorder is another one of them, which has a fascinating footnote in the DSM, which no one ever talks about, which is really interesting. Situational depression, adjustment disorder, all these things. So it's important to take your diagnostic code, if you figure it out, if you see that on your bills and stuff, with a grain of salt. It's a necessary thing, and it doesn't mean that you have this thing forever, it doesn't even mean that your clinician thinks you necessarily have it. Unfortunately, that's just the way the system works. And if you do have it, it's, you know, I don't know why we don't have more psychoeducation built into our system, but it doesn't mean that you're like messed up forever. You know what I mean? Right. Right. So what do you do about it? Um, Okay. Great that you're seeing a psychiatrist, obviously Um, keep doing that. Um, and it's also great that you're getting into projects, right? Like, and you're still working, even though you're struggling. I think like at the times in my life where I struggle the most, I mean, we're kind of talking about, this might sound like a contradiction, right? Because we were just saying like, don't put your head down and kind of blast forward. But sometimes it, there's a real value in kind of putting your head down and having some normalcy in your life and some stability and structure, um, going to work every day, even at a job I really didn't care about was really grounding and and helpful in some of the most difficult times in my life. So, you know, there's something to that. Keep doing it. It's just, could you balance that with self-care? Could you balance that with time for yourself um, so that you don't feel so fried? Um, And then the next thing I want to talk about is radical acceptance, because this is a super, super powerful tool. It is a distress tolerance tool. So anytime you're feeling distress about anything, radical acceptance can help. So it's used a lot with things that people get really stuck with. So whether that's like intractable depression or 
PTSD or um, borderline personality disorder, um, also grief, uh, complicated grief, all sorts of stuff. Um, and if you, so if you practice this, you will get better at handling stress. Any distress, obviously, right? <laughs> Any distress tolerance skill is going to help you better deal with stress. So what is it? Um, radical acceptance is complete and total acceptance of the facts of reality as they are without judgment or resistance. So it should be otherwise. I wish it were different. I don't like that this is happening, right? Those are all judgments and resistance. You know that you've accepted something when you know you've reached radical acceptance when you stop fighting reality. Right. So like you accept the facts as they are. We need to understand what acceptance means. It does not mean it's okay. <laughs> right. So when you come to radical acceptance, this is something that I've worked on with them. Um, I spent a year working with um, previously incarcerated gang members. And when we talk about radical acceptance in those situations where there's been like a murder or something like that, you're not accepting in the sense that you're saying like, oh, it's totally cool that you did that. The violent thing that you did, totally fine, no big deal, right? That's not what it means. Um, it means that you stop pushing against the past and, and wishing it could be otherwise. Mm -hmm. Because that is essentially going on a fool's errand, right? That's not going to actually accomplish anything. Um, and it except helps the, the, I'm sorry, no, go ahead. except the facts of the past, right? Except what happened, right? Not, not, your, not like the your interpretation, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't mean like that you should accept like bad behavior or abuse or a destructive situation and say like, well, this is okay. I'm radically accepting it. I'm going to stay in it. Right. right. It's that you say like, that was not okay. And it happened and it's over and I'm moving on. And here's what I've learned. Right. Notice all the ands, like <laughs> it was yeah. not okay. And all this other stuff. Yeah. Um, and it, like it, it really helps us let go of like, if you're stuck on shame or bitterness or regret, resentment, um, any of these like super corrosive emotional states that we get really stuck in, they, they hold us from progress from moving forward. So it helps with that. Um, okay. So let's, we can do like a little quick exercise. Is that okay? Yeah. Fun. All right. So step one, um, we, we radically accept things all the time and we also push against them all the time. So we can use We can go back to the, to the letter writer's example, but I think it's helpful to kind of practice this with other things. So, um, the first thing you can do is kind of notice, I think it's always helpful to build on success. So notice in your, in your head, what things you, you simply accept without resistance, right? So there's lots of thoughts that run through your head every day that you just accept without any resistance, without any judgment. So like, um, it's raining today. Boom. That's it. I'm hungry. It's, it's, it's lunchtime. Today's Tuesday, right? Like what are some other ones? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Here we are doing our podcast. Yeah. Um, yep. You're going to make dinner a little while. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, looking forward to what I'm going to watch on television tonight. Like I just, just, yep. Non-loaded thoughts. Exactly. Now, yeah. so notice how that feels in your body. Like when those thoughts come, like, what do you feel in your body? Like 
like calm. Yeah. Kind of yeah. almost, or maybe nothing, right? You just yeah. sort of like, oh, it's raining. Like, boom, it just kind of passes by. Right. You could imagine that thought like on a literal cloud, like it's raining and then it kind of goes away and you don't really like cling onto it. You don't try to wish it away. It just is. Yeah. Um, and you can think of the opposite when, and we do this all the time. Like if you have one of those days where you're just like frustrated, you might take those very same thoughts that we just talked about and push against them and resist them. Yeah. So I might wake up in the morning and be like, God damn, it's raining again. That means I woke up too early. I can't go take a walk. Shit. I really wish it wasn't raining. I wanted to walk to this. Like that's resistance. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, or like, uh, we, I talk about this a lot when I talk about like our internal narrative and how negative it is sometimes. Like sometimes I'll be like, I'm hungry. God damn it. Why am I hungry? I ate two, two hours ago. I shouldn't be hungry again. Like what the hell is that? Why do I need to be so judgmental about a thing that is happening in my body? Like, it's okay. Right. right. You're hungry again. Right. That's all judgment and resistance. Like we are resisting what simply is. Okay. And then notice how that feels in your body. Right. Yeah. Awful. Right. And I wasn't even like actually thinking any of those things that I just talked about. And I still had a body response. Right. Like I felt my shoulders went up. I started getting more like clenched. I was like, you know, you start yeah. getting fried. Your face changed. Did it? Yeah. <laughs> no, it did. It got like more tense. Like, yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And you like your language <laughs> changed, your diction changed the whole thing. Like it, that is what you're doing all the time when you're resisting something major. You're, you're doing that. And your body is like listening and responding to the resistance and it is stressed. Yeah. And it gets and stays stressed, which you, it's really hard to go into recovery and rest when you're in stress. It's in fact, it's biologically impossible. So that's why you feel so bad for so long. So if you start kind of, um, try, I think of it as like two buckets. Like there's the bucket of the, the thoughts that you just accept without resistance that feel totally kind of like, okay. And neutral in your body. And then there's the, the bucket of thoughts that you resist and they're very like jagged and stressful. So as a practice of radical acceptance, cause I don't like the, like trying to attack the thing head on. I think sometimes that's too hard if you don't have the skill yet. It's overwhelming. Um, yeah, totally. So the yeah. low thing would be to like try to move as many thoughts over the course of the day into the acceptance bucket. Okay. Right. And you can start doing that with things that you tend to kind of resist. And you can imagine, I like visualizing things um, just because it's really helpful. Move the thoughts into the space of, of acceptance. Like try to physically imagine yourself taking it out of the, the resistance bucket and putting it into the acceptance bucket. Like, um, and just put them right alongside the statements. Like it's raining. I, I am hungry. I'm yeah. sad today. It's Tuesday. I have debt that I'm worried about. There's a couple thoughts in there that I would typically resist that are in the resistance bucket. But when I put them next to the acceptance statements, they start to feel less loaded. Yeah. It neutralizes them. Right. And then I yeah. notice that they're just, they are just things like all the other things. Yeah. And it's okay. I love that. You're not like erasing them. You're not saying like, I'm not sad today. You're like, I'm sad. It's raining. It won't always be raining. I won't always be sad. Right. I have debt. It's not a huge failure. It's just a thing. Yeah. I love how that, even just talking about that, like it's such an interesting 
little roller coaster. Yeah. Because again, I'm just using examples that I thought of before. So they're not things that I'm like actually tied to, but you can feel the complete difference when you put them into the acceptance bucket. Right. You know, they lose their power. Yeah. Yeah. And it might take a really long time with this for that to happen. Oh, yeah. But try putting, try putting that statement, my marriage is over, into the acceptance bucket. Right. I'm sad about it. I feel like I gave my all. Yep. That wasn't enough. Instead of the place where I feel like it is with the letter writer now, where it's like, he's still in that place. When we're trying to understand something, we are resisting it. And I know that's like annoying because there's a time and a place to understand something, but at a certain point, it just becomes resistance. You don't want it to be the case. You feel like it's unfair and unjust that you gave your all. There was a line in there about like, I wish she could see her footprints on my shoulders. Like you yes. her up. Yep. And you're pissed about that. And I'm not trying to take away that emotion. You're, you're allowed, but put the pissed feeling in the acceptance bucket right? instead of the resistance bucket. Cause that's draining energy away from you. Right. Like I gave my all, she didn't appreciate it. That sucks. Right. It didn't work. This relationship didn't work. Right. Work fell apart. Yep. Yep. So to kind of like ratchet it up, just to give you structure for like how to do that with something bigger, because we can talk about it with the little emotions, like um, pick something you're having trouble accepting, right? So this this fact that your marriage didn't work out or the second relationship, right? Which I think is seems to be the like the straw that broke the camel's back here. Like the, this this relationship didn't work out, right? This woman has decided that it's too much and it didn't work out. What mm-hmm. caused the event, right? Like what could you like kind of diagram what happened? This will give your your brain the opportunity to like try to get into that understanding mode, but then you're going to move away from it. So what exactly went down, right? What happened? And he's done that in the letter a little bit too. Um, and then you move on to the feelings, right? What feelings come up when I think about this? I feel and name them, right? We always say like name them to tame them. Don't let them just cycle around. What are they? Write them down. I am sad. I am depressed. I'm afraid I will always be alone, whatever those are. Um, And then accept them. The emotions are part of the event. They're Mm -hmm. not a sign of your failure. And I worry about that when we get, we get diagnosed with something that you feel like, okay, well, my goal here is not to feel. No, your goal is to accept your feelings so that you don't get stuck in them. So accept them without judgment. Right. Right. So I am frustrated a lot of the time. And I see this a lot, like with, with people who are dealing with divorce and then they, they have a kind of a quick relationship after, and it falls apart. They often like a lot of the emotion about the divorce and all of their whole relationship timeline for their whole life gets filtered into the new relationship. And probably because it was kind of, it existed a lot more in potential than in reality Mm -hmm. makes it easier to idealize, you know? Um, And then they will like beat themselves up and say like, I shouldn't feel this much. We only dated for four weeks. I just left a 13 year marriage, blah, 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 blah. What the hell's wrong with me? Judgment, 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 judgment. You're going to get stuck in that. Right. You have to break out. 
what are the feelings? I feel sad. I feel betrayed. I feel heartbroken. I feel lonely. I feel whatever it is. And then try to put those into the acceptance bucket. Could, would you say that if you um, get comfortable with this idea of radical acceptance, that you will be better able to recognize things in the future? A thousand percent. Right. Because the problem is when we're not radically accepting, we get, we are judgmental about every damn thing that crosses our mind or that we feel. Right. And so we're in like a war with ourselves 24 seven and there's no peace in that. And when there's no peace, you can't, you're not as resilient. And so when you have a big emotion that, that come, that comes up, you can say like, oh, wow, I'm feeling really anxious right now. Yeah. And instead of oh my God, I'm feeling anxious. What the fuck? Why am I feeling anxious? I've done all this work. I shouldn't be feeling anxious anymore. This is inconvenient. It's going to ruin my life. I can't feel like this anymore. Like all this, that's a spiral of judgment. It's not actually the anxiety that's the issue. It's the spiral and the resistance. Yep. So bringing it into the room and saying it out loud and being like, oh, I'm noticing I'm feeling anxious. I'm noticing that it's raining. Those are two just things and they will change. Right. Um, you know what I mean? Yeah. But it's not just about accepting the past. It's preparing you for the future. Right. 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 Because whatever comes up, you'll be like, okay, here's this thing. And instead of spiraling, you'll be like, I've done this before. Yeah. You can get there faster. Right. Yeah. All of these things are like muscles. You know, the more you practice them, the easier it gets to use them. Yeah. And also muscles are weak sometimes. And it doesn't mean we're like broken. It just means something else is going on yeah you know yeah I used this example with someone yesterday like because people are like (laughs) I've been working a lot with people on um uh like on your self-narrative on on it on being you know more mindfully compassionate self-compassionate and people hate it and they're like, I don't want to do this. I don't like it. My inner narrative is nasty. And they get comfortable there. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then they're like, I can't do it. You know, I, I spent five minutes just now trying to do this exercise and I can't do it. And I hate you. <laughs> and <it's laughs> Sorry. Like, no, it's fine. It's funny. It's like, it's, and I've been there too. I have said the same thing to my own therapist. So I totally get it. But um, you wouldn't like, we hold ourselves to these like ridiculous um, expectations in our head that we would never for our body. You know, if you came to me and you were like, I'm going to run the Boston marathon. Did we just talk about this last week? I feel like I'm on repeat. No. Having deja vu. Okay. So I would never do that. (laughs) But if you did, you would be like, we would be like, okay, so what's, let's look up like the training schedule and let's talk to one of our brothers who, who often run the Boston marathon. Like, how do you train for that? So you're going to start at mile, you know, you're going to start by running one mile and then you're going to start, and then you're going to do this and that and the other and blah, blah, blah. And, um, over the course of that training process, so let's say you have like six months, you're going to make a plan and plot that out. And then you're going to hit walls at sometimes, right? You, you get the stomach flu one week and you can't run and you feel really weak in your body, but you don't beat yourself up for that. You might be frustrated and say like, well, shit, now I'm, my progress is slower. And I'm going to have to change things a little bit and adapt my plan, but I'm, I'm not going to throw it out. Yeah. Or I'm a failure. You're just going to be like, here's this physical thing that happened. Um, it's the same thing with this stuff. If you're not used to practicing radical acceptance, you can't just like go and do it. Right. 
in 10 minutes, you're going to hit all the, these walls. You have to make a plan. You have right. to practice this stuff every single day in order to see that change. Because you wouldn't, if so, if you came to me and you were like, I'm going to run the Boston Marathon tomorrow. And I was like, oh, have you been training? And you were like, no, <laughs> I'd be like, well, that is not going to work. Like you, I'm sorry to tell you this, but like, you're going to hit mile like three and like barf, you know, like, <laughs> are you out of your goddamn mind? <laughs> yeah. That's, that's not how we do this. And you wouldn't take that to be like a personal failing. You know what I mean? Like you would just be like, oh, I didn't realize you had to train for that. That's how muscle. Right. Okay, cool. Right. You know what I mean? Like we don't draw the parallel enough to this, to psychological stuff. It's still a muscle. Your brain is, a well, it's an organ, but you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> People get so stuck in the narrative though. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, Which is- part of that is because your brain is listening to you. Right. So you got to change the narrative in order to have that. You're right. And you have to, you have to sneak into it with, yeah. with these like backdoor methods. You do. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Like, it's so funny because we, we've, I've been talking about this a couple of times in, in groups that I run and like people get so, they like take their little story, they'll come in and they'll be like, okay, I want to change the story. And yeah. then you're like, okay, let's change the story. And they're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> it's my story. Don't change my story. And it's like, right. well, actually like your brain doesn't like you, you can change the facts of the story and that will change the way you feel in your brain. Yeah. We have this kind of deranged obsession with accuracy. It's not the only thing that matters. Yeah. You know, that's fascinating. And I see that a lot with, um, with people who, again, I feel like I'm, I don't know why I'm having like deja vu. So stop me if I'm saying this again, but if I'm repeating myself, we, um, we have this idea that if you, if you have trauma, you have to go back and know it all. You have to put together that narrative using your memory in order to heal it. Right. And that's not true. There's been lots of research that says that you need a narrative. That's the way that memories work, but you can make it up right? in order to heal. And obviously we're not going to do that in a situation where we are standing in front of a jury and making up a story that's not true, right? In that situation, in that context, accuracy matters a great deal. But when it comes to our psychological well-being, it doesn't actually matter that much. Sometimes you don't have access to the past and that's okay you can fill in those details, but people get really like, it's interesting to see like people like really freak out about that. They want to hang on to that. They want to hang on to the, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that's kind of a rant, but yeah, I mean, I, I would start here with, with, I think you're kind of already doing the right things letter writer, but I think like, you know, as you know, as far as what's now, you know, what to do, what is it? What was, what did he sign it? What now? What now? Yep. So now practice radical acceptance and, um, and see if you can kind of move into some hope. Like we talked about last week for your future. I know that sounds empty, but it will help. I, I love that he got this job in the prison. I think it's I know, yeah. amazing that yeah. even when he feels so horrible and lousy, he was able to find this really kind of healthy healing situation. Yeah. Where he's valued yeah, and, you know, his knowledge of the right things is appreciated. Yep. Yep. Finding meaning in the face of adversity is probably the most important thing we could ever do. Yeah. Uh, Victor Frankl wrote um, Man's Search for Meaning about his experience in the Holocaust and his work, you know, after that as a, as a clinician, um, understanding meaning. I saw this thing on the, on the street the other day that someone had kind of um, done graffiti and it said, what is the meaning of life? 
Mm-hmm. And I kind of laughed and I thought my, my response initially was meaning. Meaning is the meaning of life. Oh, I love that. Like you finding meaning and being able to like kind of dig into that is, is a way to combat this feeling of having the rub, rug ripped out from under you or your blueprint pulled away or your, you know, plan shattering or whatever language you want to use. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So just keep going. Yep. Thank you. What now? Yeah. Thanks for sharing with us. Okay. So now it's time for tiny little joys. (laughs) And the reason we do this is because it connects us to what we talked about last week, the hope circuit, right? It connects us when we talk about tiny little joys and when we notice them and we practice noticing them, we're connecting with the part of our brain that is responsible for connection and joy and creativity and all these things that can't be online at the same time as the parts of our brain that are responsible for fear and anxiety and all the other things. So do you have one? I do. (laughs) You go first though. Okay. Mine is, um, I have, uh, this, I bought some art this, uh, year from this woman who is also a friend. Her name is Janelle Demers. Um, and her website is 200faces.com. Um, that's the numbers two zero zero faces.com. This is not an ad. She doesn't even know that I'm bringing this up. Um, but I love birds and, um, she, I have these two hummingbirds that she painted, which are on the wall. Otherwise I could show them to you. Um, and they are like just gorgeous and I love them. And literally every time I sit down at my desk and see them, I'm for a little while, I like moved them all around the house because I wanted to like have them be in a place where they felt like um, highlighted, but also that I could see them, you know what I mean? So from yeah. in a place where I could, they were definitely the like focal point of the room, but I couldn't see them. So now I moved them. So they're in front of my desk and they are, um, they're just lovely and I love them. And so go check her out 200 faces.com. She does, um, portraits. And so she does animals and all sorts of things. And I just, I love her style. So that's my tiny little joy. That's great. It's so important to choose those things for your surroundings. Yeah. You know. And to have like the personal, like someone painted this, you know what I mean? Like we, I think we think a lot of the time of art as being completely out of our, you know, you think you have to buy a poster, you can't ever buy art, which a poster can be a print, right? Obviously of art, right. but I think I find so much joy in like getting hand done things. I think that's so cool. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. So that's mine. That's good. Yeah. And she does commissions and collaborations and stuff like that. So if you have an, if you have a pet or an animal that you want, or if you have like, um, like a spirit animal that you want a painting of, she can probably do that as well. Okay. I'm struggling whether or not to share mine. Cause I, I don't know if I would Why? consider this a tiny little joy, but I, it, it, it was a beautiful thing that I saw this morning on the news and I think it's important. So I'm going to share it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, there was uh, recently within the last month, there was a um, high school hockey player that was injured um, outside of Boston and there's been, it's been on the news a lot. And um, you know, the Boston Bruins have hung his Jersey in the, in the garden and there's been GoFundMe situations and his team is supporting him. And I, I don't know the details of the accident or what happened, but it, you know, it seems like it was a, a huge life altering situation. Mm-hmm. So today this kid um, was moved from Mass General Hospital to a facility in Atlanta to continue his treatment. And on the, his whole high school, his team 
in their jerseys and several people from the high school stood outside Mass General and like lined up, you know, and it was just so beautiful to see. Yeah. And I I know that's not, it's heavy. I'm sorry. It's not like a, no, no, no. Joyful, you know, by definition situation, but I thought these kids, you know, supporting their, their teammate and their friend Mm-hmm. Um, are so young and how beautiful that they are just there for this child who's going through this. And yeah. it was just such a powerful image yeah. to start the day that, I sorry. Love- <laughs> oh, no, no, I love that. I think that's such a good, that's a great example of a tiny little joy. It, it was really, it was breathtaking to, to, to witness. And I'm glad that I saw it, you know, of course I was sobbing when I was watching it, but sure. it's, um, you know, it's a, uh, it's being there for people yeah. in those moments. Going you know? up. Yeah. Yeah. The embodiment of that. So I think a lot of people, this is going to sound obnoxious, but a lot of people like on Valentine's Day are like, oh, I'm so sad. I'm so sad. I'm alone. I'm single. I'm whatever. But go do something for somebody else that will snap you out of your, of your sadness. And I'm not saying that it's not sad or that you can't feel that way or whatever, but if you're stuck in that and you right. don't want to like marinate in it on your couch all day, go do something for someone else. Cause that's the quickest way. You know what I mean? Right. Right. It's powerful. Yeah, totally. It's really powerful. Yeah. I think that I love that. Oh, I want, I just remembered though, that I wanted, this actually has to do with tiny little joys. Cause this was my tiny little joy last week, but I happened on Tuesday after we, <laughs> you know what I'm going to say? <laughs> no, it happened after we, um, we recorded. So I could, couldn't obviously put it in last week's recording, which is the cat lawyer. <laughs> that. that. <laughs> So if you don't, if somehow you live under a rock and you only right. podcast and you didn't see this, this, um, this trial and this judge signed on Zoom to a Zoom call with a lawyer and they were about to have some some sort of proceedings, official proceedings, and the, there was a filter on the Zoom account. And so the lawyer showed up as a cat, like a Snapchat filter. Like, so it was like, it was the lawyer was talking, but it was a cat face <laughs> and it was the funniest thing I have seen in a very long time. And I loved it that every single person in the country and in the world who saw it was laughing about the same thing at the same time. And it was just such a pure little joy. Like it was, there was no, it wasn't like making fun of anybody, you know, obviously it was kind of silly and he was, um, but he wasn't embarrassed. He was like on the news the next day talking about how he like appreciated that everyone could like laugh, you know, and how much we need that right now. Yeah. But also I, one of the things that I was, cause I'm, I'm always thinking about stuff like this. It was a really amazing example of radical acceptance really quickly. Right. Because he was like, I mean, this is a ridiculous thing. That's like the worst case scenario in a work situation. Right. Yeah. And within five seconds, he was like, I don't know if we can fix this. I'm prepared to move forward. As a cat. <laughs> as a cat. Like he was just, he just like took it in stride and was like, I am accepting this. Everyone else needs to accept this. I'm live. I'm not a cat. Let's move on. <laughs> I love it how the other people like helped him with it so quickly too. I know. I know. Like, this is what you're going to do. Right. And they, you, you, you saw their faces because they yeah. weren't cats and they right. were very like calm. <laughs> But it was just, I mean, there's like a a thousand ways that could have gone. Yeah. 
I was on his hand up beautifully. Did he explain, was there like a child in his house that did that to his computer or did? I think I heard that it was like his assistant's Zoom account. And so she hadn't used it in a million years or something like that. And she didn't realize the filter was on. And so he signed in as her and like, it they just didn't even know, you know, how that is where you like change something because someone teaches you how to do that in that instant. And then you have no idea what you did or like how to fix it or whatever. (laughs) You know what this reminds me of. I do. I feel like we need to have Jake on when we tell that. <laughs> Were you there? I was there in the kitchen. Oh, okay. I was there. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I don't even know how to start explaining this. I feel like I'm in my pants. Um, so our mom was a uh, very, how do you even like start this without knowing mom? She um, was extremely put together all the time. Yes. 24 yeah. Like very, like always had a beautiful outfit on. She had her hair done, her makeup on, like very, like that was her forward facing. Like she was just put together. Yep. And we were sitting in the kitchen one random, it was like a Friday night or something. And she was on her laptop and she pulled up like an old email and (laughs) realized that there was this cat avatar that had gotten assigned to her name. She system. also didn't really like animals. <laughs> oh, right. She hated animals. We had a cat um, growing up named Kitty and she hated it like a lot. <laughs> um, and so she saw that, and it was this cat, this like sideways avatar cat making this like quizzical face that had been, she didn't realize that it was attached to her Apple ID. So every single time she sent an email, it came up with her name and then this cat avatar which is so not her. It, it would be like, I, I, how would you compare it? It would be like, I, I don't know, like who's like sophisticated and like, like, uh, like Meghan Markle. Yeah. Right. Or like yeah. Kate Middleton or like somebody Kate Middleton like, having a cat, like a sideways cat. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like it's just ridiculous. You would just be like, what? Like, I don't weird. Um, but she realized but, what? But we both were there in the moment where like it clicked and you could see it on her face that that every single email she had sent over the past several years had this cat attached to it. And she was like, what in the hell? And then immediately she was like, it's Jake. I think Jake did it. And she called him on the phone. It was like Friday night at like nine o'clock or something. And she was like, did you put this cat on my account? Jake's our younger brother. He was like, uh, I don't, I still don't know if he, I don't think he did it. Did it? I don't know. I think it's probably just like Apple assigned you a random avatar and she just like never, you know, she skipped over that choosing process or something. (laughs) (laughs) Oh God. We'll put it. So, okay. This is another thing. Just like we need to do a thing at the end of the podcast now. That's like, um, it, you know, little administrative things, whatever you call that. What's the word I'm thinking for? I don't know. Um, anyway, I can't think of it. Um, we are, we have our Instagram up and running at the trauma tapes on Instagram, and we're going to start putting in little posts about our tiny little joys and things we talk about and stuff like that. So let's put a picture of her and then find the cat avatar. So you can see how funny that would be for her to be sending out this hilarious cat. Okay. (laughs) I didn't think about that with the cat lawyer last week. It just hit me that it, oh, I it did. reminded me of that. 
That's a good one. So yeah, so check out our Instagram. Um, we also have a website Jake is building for us. So we are at, I think it's just the traumatapes.com. Yeah. Um, that's in progress. And um, I write little letters. Here's the thing that's kind of, one of the things that's kind of funny about this podcast is that usually I work with clients one-on-one and we have a whole like relationship, right? So I can like, if I forget something or if I'm thinking about it later, I can like bring it up in our, the next time I talk to them. With these letters, I'm finding it like, it's kind of funny because you get to say things but there's no feedback from the other person. And also there's a bunch of, there'll be like a hundred things that I think of the next day. Yeah. So I'm writing these little letters to the letter writers as the, the kind of the words under the post that announces that episode. So um, read those. Cause they're kind of fun um, to write. They're great. And, oh, thank you. They're fun. Um, and what else do we, Oh, also like, um, subscribe if you can rate the podcast, if you can, that helps us enormously get seen by other people, uh, which will help us keep going. So if you like this, please subscribe and rate it, uh, tell other people about it, whatever you want. Um, and keep writing letters. So, um, write us to the trauma tapes, write us at the trauma tapes at gmail.com and we will, um, feature your letter here. And also like you mentioned earlier, if you want a deeper dive into something, please yeah bring that up for sure. Cause we can also do Q and a episodes, right? If there's a bunch of, cause we talk about all sorts of stuff, brain science, random exercises. Like if you're trying this stuff and you're getting stuck or you're, you're like, wait a second, what are you talking about? The hope circuit? Like ask, cause we, we don't know what, what, to, you know, what yeah. speak to you. Before we started recording, I, I asked Mac something that I was wondering about from last week that I wanted yeah. a little more clarification on. So, right. Yeah. We were talking about the hope circuit. So, yeah. So, so bring, bring that stuff up. Yeah. Okay. I think that's all. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Letter writer. And, um, we will see you all next week. Hey, if you have a passion for helping others and you want to create a more meaningful career or add to your current skill set, it's time to become a life coach with Lumia. When I became a life coach many years ago, there wasn't anything like this. So I developed this program alongside with Noel Cordeaux, Lumia Coach Training, and it's amazing. It's 100% live and online, meaningful evidence-based education, real people, real community, ICF accredited to with 20 diverse instructors in a thriving alumni community. Go to theangrytherapist.com and click on Become a Coach and explore Lumia Coach Training. I'll see you in class.